Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Indest, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Andre Nye, about his new book, Immersion, Narrative, and Gender Crisis in Survival Horror Video Games. Before we jump in, though, I want to let you know that if you like our show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or Spotify and share this episode with your friends. And now, back to the show. The book at hand investigates the narrativity of some of the most popular survival horror video games and the gender politics implicit in their story worlds. In a thorough analysis of the genre that draws upon detailed comparisons with the mainstream action genre, the author and editor places his analysis firmly within a political and social context. André, welcome to the show. Um, thank you, Rudolf, for your invitation. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, it's really an honor, and uh, I hope I can provide you with uh, satisfying answers to your questions. I'm pretty sure that will happen. Thank you very much. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, of course, including your favorite game, and the one or even the ones you're playing right now? Um, thank you for the question. So I am Dr. Andre Nye. My full name is Andre Moore Nye, but I publish under the name Andre Nye. Uh, I am a lecturer at the University of Bucharest, where I teach two courses in game studies, one of them uh, which is dedicated to uh, the study of video games as narrative media, so it's basically an introduction to the study of video games as narrative media. And the second course, uh, which discusses video games and cultural identity. So I look at the way in which cultural identities, well, as many as I can include in 14 weeks, are represented and simulated in video games. Uh, yes, I'm the author of Immersion Narrative and Gender Crisis in Survival Horror Video Games, published by Routledge. Uh, I am. I have also just um, successfully finished a uh, research project, which whose manager I was, on colonialism in video games, and I am currently under contract with the uh, Greuter for a uh, edited volume uh, about um, colonialism in video games. The volume will be most likely be entitled "Colonial Intersections in Video Games." where I hope to provide a uh, more more encompassing post-colonial critique of video games, more encompassing than the ones, than the very valuable existing analysis which uh, have already been published. Uh, this would be my short bio. Uh, as far as my, my favorite video game is concerned, uh, unsurprisingly, my favorite video game, now obviously it's pretty difficult to establish what one's favorite video game is in as much as it is very difficult to establish what one's favorite TV series or film or novel is. But um, I think it's safe to say that my favorite video game is Silent Hill 2. 
Uh, it's a video game which I played, well, quite a few years back. And uh, it is one of the reasons why, uh, why I uh, devoted so much time and energy to the study of video games. It was a video game which provided me with a very meaningful gameplay experience on various levels, ludically, diegetically, emotionally, philosophically, if you wish. And uh, yeah, this is the game that really, really um, motivated me to to study video games. Um, so yeah, and your to answer your final question, uh, what video game I am playing now? Uh, I am currently struggling to play Horizon Forbidden West. I say struggling because as somebody who did a lot of research on video games. Uh, released around the year 2000, playing playing video games with uh, game time spanning for over 20 hours with a huge list of mechanics seems to be a bit out seems to be a bit out of hand. So I guess I'm not exaggerating when I say that I'm struggling to finish the game, and uh, I do have a deadline because I am attending a conference on um, on on video games. Uh, the, you might be familiar with uh, the conference series Playing the Field, which uh, has, uh, has reached its third edition. And I'm very happy to, to, have, to have been accepted to the third uh, edition of this conference where I will deliver a talk on, uh, a, where I will yeah, give a talk on the Horizon video games. So uh, yeah, doing my best to you know, beat the game without cheating. Hopefully I get there in time. Yeah, well, some things uh, come to my mind right here, just on top of, from top of my head, so to speak. Of course, we definitely have to speak about your new book when it's coming out. That's a given. So, um, if I may ask, how old are you? I'm 32 years old. 32, because that's I have observed an interesting fact because you were mentioning Silent Hill 2 as your favorite video game. And a lot of my students, they are, let's say, in their, yeah, mostly early 20s. And Silent Hill 2 is one of those games that my, uh, talking about uh, air quotes here, my generation of, of game researchers, I'm in my mid-40s, we all know about this game and we all seem to value it a lot or have something to say about it or put interesting questions, research questions. Um, but my students, on the other hand, they really don't get it. They don't get this game. It's just something old, they tell me. So it's a bit frustrating from time to time if we want to talk about or if I want to talk about Silent Hill 2 with them. So maybe uh, maybe it's not all lost because you're ten, over 10 years younger than me. Uh, hoping for the best. <laughs> well, um, in my courses, obviously, my students are um, obliged. It is mandatory for them to play some games. And uh, I make sure to include games that were released in the 2000s, in the 90s, even in the late 80s. I think it's very important for not only for scholars, but also for students who want to become practitioners in in the industry, to have a good knowledge of uh, not not only of the games which are popular, you know, at a, which are popular now, but also those video games which were popular a few years ago, because uh, um, there are some dominant game design norms that are adapted from one generation of consoles to the other. So um, I think it is in their interest to, to play as many games as possible on as many platforms as possible and coming from, you know, you know, irrespective of how old those games are. And this is something that, you know, I also, uh, you know, stress during my during my lectures it's important to take into consideration games that have been that games that were published 10, 10 years ago 15 years ago 20 years ago 25 years ago it, it really gives you a, a valuable bird's eye view and uh, yeah um, I do my I do my best to try and familiarize my students with 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 games that they normally maybe wouldn't play today because you know there is a 
There is a technological barrier. I mean, if you want to play a, a game which was released for the PlayStation 2, good luck finding a PlayStation 2. And then good luck finding a, a CD of that video game which is compatible with the version, with the second-hand version of the PlayStation 2 you managed to find on eBay or Amazon or whatever. Yeah, right. So, uh, yeah. Now, this is why it's important to have research centers which have, you know, the proper equipment and... Uh, at the University of Bucharest, actually, we do we do have the proper equipment uh, as a result of the of the research projects which um, which I have taken part in, and I could I could consequently be able to finance um, uh, to purchase to purchase some of these uh, some of these, some of these consoles. So yeah, um, yeah, and it's also important to see it's not it doesn't stop there, right? Because you also would need someone who's able to to repair all these things when they break down. It's not that easy. Yeah. Well, luckily, uh, I've I've been teaching my courses for I guess two years. This is my third year, mm -hmm. and uh, we haven't got to the point where the consoles have broken down. <laughs> so uh, it will be an experience to see what. Uh, how consoles which were you know uh, fabricated 20 years ago can be mended but uh, let's hope this uh, situation doesn't crop up anytime soon yeah yeah let's knock on wood i'd like to circle back now um to your book so please tell us how did you come to write immersion narrative and gender crisis and survival horror video games well um as already mentioned uh I enjoyed playing the video game Silent Hill 2 quite a lot. It was a uh, life-changing experience. And I'm not exaggerating. Life-changing because that's how I got the main idea for my dissertation. Mm -hmm. So uh, what happened was that um, after while playing and after playing the game, after playing the game, I was very impressed with how much this game was able to communicate. So, uh, you know, uh, it, survival, horror, survival horror video games similar to Silent Hill 2 are characterized by, you know, a very gamer-unfriendly gameplay. The mechanics are, you know, counterintuitive. The controls are difficult to learn. I mean, in principle, if you think of a game such as Silent Hill 2, mm -hmm. mm, you wouldn't consider it to be the most playable or the most player-friendly. Mm -hmm. uh, what really, you know, shocked me uh, while uh, back back when I was playing the game was uh, the game's ability to keep me really engaged in in the events and really immersed in its story world, despite this, you know, cumbersome gameplay. Which, you know, had it been any other, any other video game, I, I might have just, you know, dropped the controller, dropped the keyboard, and you know, stopped playing. Yeah. But no, this did not happen. And the, there, there arose the research question, which then paved the way to, to the book I, I, I wrote and which was published uh, um, well published in 2021 and a second edition, an improved edition in 2022. Uh, why, how did that game succeed in keeping me immersed despite its gameplay? And uh, that's how I ended up writing this book because... Um, Whilst trying to understand how Silent Hill, sorry, whilst trying to understand how Silent Hill 2 as a video game works rhetorically and manages to um, immerse the player, I realized that this is not that this was not specific to Silent Hill 2 only, but that this was specific to a um, to the genre, to the survival horror genre. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically, what I the main argument of my book is that. To put it in very very simple terms, because I assume we will you know get to discuss this in more detail uh, during this show, yeah. uh, this, you know, most action adventure video games immerse players in a very you know standard way. They give the they they give players more immediacy, more uh, intuitive controls, more engaging in-game activities. Therefore, they end up uh, immersing the player. Obviously, this is not the case with survival horror video games where immersion works, but in a very different manner. Immersion in survival horror video games um, 
lays um, rests first and foremost on their narrativity, i.e. on their ability to tell stories in a more persuasive and expressive way than many, than maybe other um, actual adventure video games, and their ability to assign diegetic meaning to this very gamer-unfriendly gameplay, to these cumbersome and ineffective game mechanics, to these counterintuitive, sometimes annoying, often frustrating controls that are often difficult to master. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this was basically the hypothesis uh, that I, uh, you know, reached as I was as I was doing my working on my dissertation. And uh, after, you know, graduating from the doctoral school, I published my dissertation and then wrote this book where I, um, you know, managed to uh, basically prove this hypothesis. I hope I have proven this hypothesis. Yeah. We'll see what uh, readers and reviewers have to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have talked, or you have talked about a little bit about immersion um, already, but let's let's uh, deep dive uh, into this for a second or a moment or even <laughs> more than just a moment. Because your book is divided into three main parts, and the first one is titled Immersion and Gender in Action Games, and you decided to split it up further. Now, let's talk about your first branch under the headline Immersion in Mainstream Action Games. Maybe you could us you could guide us through your understanding of the term immersion itself here a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um well immersion is, you know, one of the main things that pop to mind that when, when people think of video games. Video games are considered to be one of the most immersive uh, popular media out there. And uh I guess, you know, people are right. Uh, and because immersion has been such a buzzword surrounding video games for ever since they they you know uh, entered the market and became mm-hmm. very popular, uh, a lot of a lot of literature has been written on um, on the topic. Now, uh, because uh, the goal of my um, of my book was to focus on a specific type of video game, a specific subgenre of the survival horror video games. What I tried to do was to provide a um, a more, on the one hand, a, a, a more a simple yet encompassing understanding of immersion, but, I mean, si- yes, simple and encompassing, but also palatable to the goal of my research, namely that of understanding how survival horror video games work. Um, so um, when speaking of immersion, by drawing on the rich existing literature, um, I uh, I basically define immersion as a uh, concatenation of three elements, immediacy, interactivity, and narrativity. Mm-hmm. Um, immediate, uh, and again, all these three components have been discussed in various other articles and, and books and... Um, my my uh, my thesis is that basically when we assess immersion in video games, we have to see to what extent games can be uh, immediate, interactive, and narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, immediacy refers to uh, immediacy is a is, is a concept which applies not only to video games but to media in general. And uh, immediacy is uh, that immediacy is basically. Uh, the ability of a medium to erase itself, the ability of a medium to represent or simulate an object, an event, in such a way so that that the viewer, the player, the reader, the spectator becomes unaware of the mediation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And and this is a concept, you know, coined by Walter and Krusin, and it's one of the, you know, cornerstone concepts of of, uh, media studies today. Mm -hmm. Uh, interactivity obviously refers to the ability of video games to um, uh, assign responsibility to the player in creating or in co-creating the material signs of the 
emitted by the medium, which we then use cognitively to create the mental story world represented and simulated by the video game. Yeah. Uh, now, obviously, again, interactivity is a concept which is uh, which has been, uh, you know, a, a heated topic of debate in the last years. Uh, because, um, you know, there are very many technologies out there which are interactive, but not all of them are as meaningfully interactive as interactivity in video games. Hmm. So um, when I speak of interactivity, I, I, I'm, I'm re- I, I specifically refer to the meaningful, ludic and diegetic interaction that, that video games afford. So... Uh, Interacting with a video game is very different from interacting with a television by using the remote control. Mm -hmm. So this is basically it. Interactivity is the ability of video games to provide players with ludic challenges, uh, which then the players can solve by by means of the of the game mechanics. So it's basically this process this process of uh, story world co co creation where uh, a lot of responsibility for what story world is simulated and represented by the by the medium of, by the medium of the by the medium of the video game rests on the shoulders of the player yeah it's you know it is by virtue of the player's agency ludic agency and diegetic agency that a, that a series of events take place on the screen and not another one so this would be one of the components of immersion. Therefore, in principle, the more interactive the game is, i.e., the more ludically and diegetically meaningful your input as a player in a video game is, in theory, the higher the immersion should be. And finally, there is the, the third pillar, that of narrativity. Yes. Which I think is very important. Uh, narrativity is a concept uh, coming from second second wave cognitive narrative theory. So in cognitive narrative theory, um, there has been this preoccupation for um, providing a new understanding of the concept of narrative to include the variety of narrative practices which exist out there. So basically, people like David Herman will say that narrative theory historically was very good at you know explaining to us how say novels communicate narrative meaning how films communicate narrative meaning but unfortunately traditional narrative theory isn't particularly uh, adept to uh, you know analyze give insight into a whole range of other narrative practices which institutionally were not always favored I mean, let's face it, no one would have imagined a course in storytelling in video games in the 90s. Yeah. So uh, this is why I have this concept of narrativity, which, of course, when David Herman came uh, came up with this with this idea, uh, he wasn't specifically you know, referring to video games. I mean, he might have considered them, but uh, his book, Basic Elements of Narrative, does not approach video games, if, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. However, I realized that uh, his concept was very, very useful, fruitful, and generous, and provided me with the uh, theoretical scaffolding to understand how video games can also be narratives. Of course, not all video games are narratives, and this is a very broad discussion, which I don't think we have the time to uh, to go into. <laughs> would be, yeah, I would love to, but yes. no. Yeah, I mean, we can have another show on that if you, if you yeah. want to. But uh, uh, basically, by means of David Herman's concept of narrativity, uh, I ended up being able to assess the level of narrativity of games. So to what extent a video game can be considered a narrative mm-hmm. based on his prototypical definition of narrative. So David Herman, you know, draws a lot on prototype theory. It, it's, a whole, it's a whole thing there. Don't have time to go into it. So basically... Uh, to, to draw the conclusion of my understanding of, of immersion or the understanding of immersion which I propose in the game in the in the book and which I insist in is, is not necessarily revolutionary. It's more of a uh, review of existing literature and highlighting those elements which are common to various studies. The yeah. conclusion I draw is that immersion rests on a video game's ability to be uh, 
transparent, i.e. immediate, so to erase its mediation, to be interactive, i.e. to provide players with meaningful, ludic, and diegetic interaction with the story world of the game. So, uh, yeah, giving players many meaningful interaction, the ability to interact meaningfully. And finally, narrativity, the, the ability of video games to... Uh, to stage the events, to to uh, yeah, that's I guess that's a proper word to stage the events in such a way so that by means of of the limited in, means of interaction provided with the player, a quote unquote good story ensues. And right. uh, this is my my understanding of uh, of immersion. And uh, this is, in my view, the way in which mainstream action-adventure video games try to immerse video games. If you look at the history of action-adventure video games, uh, it's as if video games have been engaged in an immersion arms race. Each new game, for you, I mean, ever since I can remember, each new game has always promised players more immediacy, uh, better mechanics, more convincing and expressive means of narrative communication, you know? I mean, you know, if you look, for instance, at uh, the evolution of consoles and the rendering capacity for graphic cards, uh, the idea of constantly bettering the representational abilities, constantly providing players with more, more levels, more abilities to interact with the game, more mechanics, and so on and so forth, you know, has led to this, you know, progressive uh, understanding of, of immersion, which rests on this, you know, um, but which is buttressed by, by this idea that the more you have, the better it is. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, you know, um, an idea which is challenged, in my yeah. view, by um, older survival horror video games. Yeah comes the word hyper hyper realism comes to my mind there right mm-hmm. mm. well in your second branch then called the gender politics of immersion you start out by stating that and i quote here video games are not politically neutral artifacts again video games are not politically neutral artifacts. Now, I assume when it comes to gender politics in general these days, it's hard to find neutral positions at all. Where would you put digital games in this discourse then? Well, um, obviously, uh, video games, like all all popular media, are a part of culture and they influence the, the dominant culture whilst also being influenced by the dominant culture. So we have this dialogical relationship between the dominant culture and video games. Mm -hmm. Uh, The point I'm trying to make there is basically, you know, uh, I'm basically reiterating a, I am basically reiterating the position of cultural studies and I later adapt them to, adapt it to uh, the medium specificity of video games so as to draw a uh, correlation between the way in which games immerse players and the way in which gender is represented and simulated or you know and in order to better highlight the ideological position which individual games can take with respect to gender Um, so yeah obviously uh video games like any other media are not politically neutral they the way in which they represent and simulate gender is very important simply because many of these games are so popular that they end up being played by millions of people out there. Yeah. So uh, it's very important that we also take into consideration the social dimension of these video games because, you know, they do play a role in the way, or I mean, they video games, because they are so popular, because they are so time-consuming, because they are so immersive, yeah. they do play a role in the way we perceive the world, other people, other people, gender identities. I generally think that video games can shape to a certain extent our perceptions and understandings of gender, which is why a critical understanding of the way gender is represented in video games is required. Uh, this has been the case in the, in the past years, 
But I think that, uh, 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 you know, unfortunately for many years, video games were, because video games, unfortunately, did not benefit from a lot, from a lot of cultural capital. Mm-hmm. So they were like, you know, for, for many years, they were deemed unworthy of being studied in academia, of, you know, being the subject of critical theory. A lot happened. <laughs> There were very many video games which were very popular and very problematic, but not really benefit for the, from the type from the type of criticism they would have needed in order for the franchises to improve them to improve themselves. And I think that uh, recent um, recent efforts to you know make video games which are more open to diversity are also the result is are also the result of uh, recent attempts in academia to include video games in syllabi, to fund research projects that focus on video games, to encourage cultural critics and people doing cultural studies and people doing political readings of culture to devote their attention to video games. So uh, basically this book is part of this ongoing effort on the part on you know on the part of academia to work towards a more inclusive and more tolerant gaming culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now let's, let's hope for the best here, right? I mean, it's a, that's, that's one of the, the most challenging pathways. Mm. At this point of, of your book, we are, we are entering your second part titled Classical Survival Horror Games. And after my initial shock of not being able to find Haunted House and Sweet Home on your list, (laughs) I calm down again. You take a very close look at the usual suspects, such as Resident Evil and Silent Hill. So I wonder, how did you pick these games? And maybe you can also talk a bit about your method of analysis. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, to begin with, um, yeah, Sweet Home and Haunted House. I do acknowledge them in some footnotes, actually. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, uh, the problem with so any endeavor to talk about the history of a genre involves selecting some games, some books, some films, and and paying less less attention to others. Yes. Also, especially when one wants to draw some historical boundaries, you know there is a level of arbitrariness which I I acknowledge. Hmm. Uh, to me, games such as Sweet Home are part of what I think can be referred to as the prehistory of the survival horror genre. Mm-hmm. To me, the first full-fledged, fully-fledged survival horror video game is the first Resident Evil, which paved the way for one strand of what I call classical survival horror. And then, and then you have Silent Hill, uh, succeeded then by Silent Hill 2, which really, you know, paved the way to for another strand in the what I call classical survival horror. Yeah. So, um, but a few words about the so, so so yeah, I mean the reason why Sweet Home is not there is because I consider Resident Evil to be the first fully fledged survival horror video game. Um, and I am aware that you know many survival, many hardcore survival horror video game fans might be shocked that many of the titles they are familiar with and may not be there. But the whole point of this book was not to provide overviews of games or genres because we have that already. Mm-hmm. When I when I conceived this book, I it was my intention to provide a series of repre- of case studies of representative video games. Yeah. Because what I felt was lacking in in uh, in game studies literature was uh, precisely this in depth analysis of the political rhetoric of video games. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, what I did was to choose representative video games, provide in depth analysis, in order to support my hypothesis. 
Now to focus on on what you know the, the method was. Well, so uh, first in the first chapter I uh, I discuss I provide a theoretical groundwork for immersion. In the second chapter I highlight and this is something that is important. I highlight the manner in which gender representation and gender simulation relates to immersion or to the way in which video games um, attain immersion. I think that one of the most important findings of my book is the fact that I, I is the correlation which I identify between the immersion strategy employed by a video game and its, and its representation of gender. Basically, what I notice is that action-adventure video games, which try to maximize their immediacy, interactivity, and narrativity, are more likely to uh, opt for a very standard, conservative, even sexist representation of gender. So, in other words, maximizing immediacy, interactivity, and narrativity, i.e. achieving immersion via maximization, is more likely to produce uh, um, conservative representations of gender. So this is, you know, one, um, one, of, the, one of my findings. And uh -huh. then what I noticed, and this is very interesting, was that Survival horror video games, because they do not try to immerse the player by maximizing their immediacy, interactivity, and narrativity, they then have the possibility to represent gender identities in a way so in such a way so as to subvert gender norms, dominant gender norms. So basically what I argue in my book is that whilst most action-adventure video games try to achieve immersion via the maximization of immediacy, interactivity, and narrativity, survival horror video games, or to be more precise, classical survival horror video games, the games released roughly in between 1996 and 2004-2005, immerse the players by, and this is very interesting, lowering their degrees of immediacy and, and interactivity, but heightening their level of narrativity to the point that the low levels of immediacy and, and interactivity are narrativized. So in classical survival horror video games, yes, the controls are bad, but that the fact that the controls are bad conveys diegetic meaning. Mm -hmm. Yes, the visual language is very cinematic. The, you know, many important diegetic, uh, very very many important ludic objects are concealed and hidden. Uh, the camera angles do not help you uh, to to play the game better. But this also conveys narrative meaning. So uh, these ludic game design choices are. Um, are made in such a way so as to contribute to the narrative communication. And um, starting from this assumption, I look at, for instance, Resident Evil and show how this is the case. You know, I show yeah. how uh, uh, you know uh, the lack of the lack, the low level of immediacy and the low level of interactivity um, paved the way to the representation of. of of gender identities that is really subversive. Subversive in what sense? Resident Evil is very good at achieving what we in what what in you know uh, media studies is, is referred to as a modal dissonance or modal irony. So, uh, for instance, visually the characters are represented as stereotypical heroes or, or heroines. So, if you look at Chris Redfield, he's your standard cis white hero who saves the day mm. so you know you watch the first cutscene you see the you see them you, you see the characters you expect them to be able to you know fight the zombies defeat their opponents and then you start playing and all of a sudden you're super vulnerable so visually the game communicates look your character is strong because it resonates with a series of with a host of cliches and expectations determined by the action-adventure genre, and then whilst playing, those expectations are defied because the gameplay does not allow you to live up to the expectations engendered by the visual representation. Yeah. And uh, it is this type of dissonance which, you know, puts these gender roles and gender expectations into context 
and eventually my my claim is deconstructs them with silent hill 2 again you have uh, uh you have a video game that uh, has low levels of immediacy and interactivity but a high level of narrativity why because uh, uh for instance the, the the cumbersome gameplay the counterintuitive controls yes may not be very fun to may not be very engaging ludically speaking but diegetically they make a lot of sense because they can be construed and the game basically cues you to do so yeah uh, they can be construed as a procedural representation of the vulnerability of the playable character who himself is traumatized by his inability to live up to the standard cis white male gender role so summer hill 2 is about what the the protagonist's inability to uh enact the role of the savior and you know the cumbersome control then you know is basically what a procedural representation of this uh constant failure to live up to the artificial gender role yeah um and this is why both these games are very immersive because uh Yes, gameplay is well, quote unquote, quote unquote, bad for lack of a better word. But although it is not very, it doesn't abide by you know our expectations as far as gameplay is concerned. They are very engaging. They are engaging because they communicate narrative meaning, and the narrative meaning they communicate is also very, very subversive, very subversive. And um, uh, I should also mention that, you know, Resident Evil is a game which has been criticized for its sexism. And yes, there is a lot of sex. The, the represent, gender representation is the first Resident Evil is sexist. However, if you provide a deeper rhetorical analysis of the game, I think that we can, it is safe to, to claim that those that the game ends up undermining the very sexist representations that many other scholars have astutely acknowledged, remarked, and criticized. So, um, yeah, um, this is how this is basically how my how the second part of my of my book works. I show how survival horror video games immerse not by maximizing immediacy, interactivity, but narrativity, but by you know compensating for the low levels of immediacy and interactivity with the help of their high level of narrativity and how this then enables them to simulate and represent characters um, whose diegetic profile and whose ludic profile, i.e. the way you control them, the way you play with them, undermine mm-hmm. conventional understandings of gender. Yeah. Well, and then, and then finally, finally, it's time for for your third part in your book, and you have uh, you have uh, you have arrived at at what you call post classical survival horror games. And I gotta admit that I instantly thought about an article from Steve Rose in the Guardian titled, "I called it post horror, and now I've created a monster," where he where he seemingly cries out loudly, what are the boundaries? How much can you subvert the rules before you are not in the genre anymore? Who decides? Clearly not me. So um, here's my trick question. And this is only fair because we have entered Spooktober now. Sir, have you been creating a monster as well? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> well, um Yes, you know, uh, one of the one of the things they teach you when when you attend research seminars at universities that you know you're supposed to come up with a coherent methodology, and they all say, "Do not create methodological monsters." <laughs> I hope my book is not a methodological monster. I, <laughs> I I put a lot of effort uh, I put a lot of effort into that first part, and uh, the feedback I have received so far has been positive. So yeah. Uh, Fortunately, it is not a methodological monster, but definitely post-classical survival horror video games are monstrous because they are very hybrid and heterogeneous in terms of game design. So 
Um, I've just said that classical survival horror video games are characterized by this, you know, specific way in which they uh, they um, achieve immersion. What I call immersion via narrativization. So you have a you have a tricky gamer unfriendly gameplay which is narrativized by the story. All of a sudden, gameplay is not so much uh, fun because it's enjoyable to play, but rather it, it becomes fun because it communicates narrative meaning. This is only to, to a specific extent uh, valid for post-classical survival horror video games, which try to sort of get closer to the dominant game design norms of the action-adventure genre. So uh, if you look at post-classical survival horror video games, you will notice that many of them use first-person shooter mechanics. Others use the third per- the, um, the game mechanics of uh, standard hack-and-slash third-person video games. So these games are not so player-unfriendly as the older survival horror video games were. Uh, Obviously, this relativizes this uh, immersive strategy, which I call immersion via narrativization, and which I think is uh, representative for classical survival horror video games. Post-classical survival horror video games try to find a middle ground between, uh, you know, the um, the impetus towards, you know, gamer-friendly video games and immersion via maximization and the critical deconstructive impulses of classical survival horror video games. Uh, Basically, when I say post-classical survival horror, I I speak about this very heterogeneous host of horror horror video games which negotiate between these two contradicting impulses. Mm -hmm. The norms of mainstream action-adventure video games and immersion via maximization and the norms of classical survival horror video games such as Resident Evil, Silent Hill, Dino Crisis, Fatal Frame, Forbidden Siren, and mm. others. Yeah. And their deconstructive impulses and gamer unfriendly designs. Uh, so um, what what I show in my uh, in my third part, in my third and final part of my book is that these games are very heterogeneous, both in terms of game design and therefore also in terms of gender politics. So some games tend to maintain the deconstructive and critical impulses of the of the, of the older ones, whilst others are more, how should I put it, standard, normative. To give you an example, Resident Evil 4. Um, so as I said, you know, the first Resident Evil had many uh, sexist representations of gender, but the, many of those representations were um, undermined by the gameplay provided by the video game. Yeah. This is no longer the case in Resident Evil 4, where we, you no longer have the modal dissonance or the modal irony of the first Resident Evil. In Resident Evil 4, the standard cis white male protagonist saving the day against a host of uh, othered beings is enacted. So, you know, this story is no longer as uh, the critique of, uh, of, of, the, of the previous installments is no longer there. Um, on the other hand, you have games such as Hellblaze and you have Sacrifice, where Yes, you do have very many um, game design choices and game design norms which are borrowed from, you know, mainstream AAA uh, hack and slash third-person video games. Mm. But this uh, this does not prevent the the video game from articulating a critique of patriarchy, which is also very complex. Because what is very fascinating about Hellblade Senior Sacrifice is the fact that uh, what we're dealing with there is a critique of patriarchy at the intersection with Sainism. So um, I argue in my book, this is a game that although it uses many of the conventional game design norms of hack and slash video games, it does manage to recuperate immersion via narrativization, and therefore it is able to convey a critique of patriarchy, which is uh, reminiscent 
of the classical era of the golden age era of uh, survival horror. Yeah. Mm, I see. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time now, and we have also been talking a bit about your ongoing projects. But besides from your publishing activities, what are you working right now? And of course, what will you be playing next aside from Horizon when there's maybe a bit more time? Um, well, you know, we people working in academia uh, use a lot of free time to read more and maybe to prep classes. Yeah. Uh, uh, aside from that, you know, I just, I cook vegan and work out. Ooh. <laughs> in any way relevant. Um, uh, I, I'm not vegan, but I cook vegan because my spouse is vegan. So, you know, it makes sense. Only fair. Um, no, the problem is that if you live in Romania, it's very difficult to be vegan. It's very difficult. Yeah. And I'm based in Romania, so it's a challenge. Yeah. Uh, yes, and working out, I mean, the pandemic has not been very healthy for all of us with all that sitting inside and not moving around. So I need to get into a healthier shape. So uh, this is what I do aside from uh, writing articles, reading articles, prepping classes, uh, and playing video games. Uh, the next video game which I want to play um, is, and I, I shamefully admit I have not played it yet, Death Stranding. Because I am very interested in how masculinity is represented there, how it relates to the mechanics, how the game immerses the player, uh, and uh, I think it's uh, it's something that I might also want to, to discuss with my students. So uh, again, you know, it's a uh, yes. I mean, I, I the the idea is to play it as you know as leisure, but I think that it is a it is a leisure activity which can also be useful for my for my teaching and maybe even for my research. Yeah. So this is, if you wish, I, this is the game that is on my list and. Yet it has been out there for a while, but uh, I just have not had the time to to play it, and I hope to be able to play it soon. If it if it's some sort of of mental support for you, I haven't played it as well. So living in the sh in the same sh shame boat as you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> You're too kind. Yeah. I want to thank you for being on the show today, and I really enjoyed it since I learned a lot, and I can also. I can only, sorry, I can only recommend to get your hand on that specific book. It's a great read. So thank you again and take care and goodbye. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. So, dear listeners, I hope you like this episode. If you are an author and or an editor in the field of game studies or game research yourself and want to talk about your latest publication, do not hesitate to contact me. To get in touch, please send us a message on social media. You will find me under Rudolf Indust almost everywhere. Have a good one and stay healthy.